Hello and welcome to this podcast on biobanking for pulmonary critical care and sleep research. This podcast is sponsored by the Assembly on Allergy, Inflammation and Immunology and the Genetics and Genomics section of the American Thoracic Society. Our special guest today is Dr. Scott Wise. Dr. Wise is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and he is the director of the Partners Healthcare Center for Personalized Medicine. Dr. Wise is also an expert in biobanking, and he has assembled one of the largest biobanks for pulmonary research in the world. Dr. Wise, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us more about your experience creating the biobank at your institution? Well, the, the, the first thing I would say is, is that um, we, we decided as a healthcare system that rather than having a separate biobank for Mass General Hospital and a separate biobank for the Brigham, that we were going to have one biobank for the whole health system. So this is creates economies of scale because it means that investigators at both hospitals have an opportunity to use the samples and we only have to develop one facility for the whole uh, partner's healthcare system. So we have about 6,000 investigators and uh, approximately $1.4 billion in research across the health system. So a lot of investigators, they're potential customers for the biobank. The second thing I would say is, is that the biobank is embedded within an infrastructure to help investigators with all of their research. So it's not just a standalone biobank. It's a biobank that's connected by an IT infrastructure to a, a core laboratory that does sequencing and genotyping, clinical CLIA laboratory that can do genetic and genomic testing, and a research portal, which is an IT portal for investigators where they can go and get information from the electronic medical record or biobank samples to use in their research uh, in these cores. That is uh, a very impressive organization at this uh, stage in your division, what is the main application of, bio, of your biobank samples? Um, is it in diagnostics, genomic research, or validation of animal models or other applications? I think that right now, uh, the major use of the biobank samples is for genetics and genomics. We collect three tissue types, serum, plasma, and DNA, uh, on all of the biobank participants. And the DNA has been used to uh, perform GWAS, genome-wide association study, mm -hmm. across the first 25,000 biobank participants. And that data is, a ma is made available free to investigators. So th th this is a, a, a resource that's pr probably worth um, several hundred thousand dollars that we're giving away free to investigators. And we have five to ten investigators every week that are requesting this data. So mostly right now, it's genomic research, but we have the capacity to do proteomics, metabolomics uh, um, as well using the stored sample. So there's a lot of potential for these other areas, but uh, right now it's mostly genomics. In your opinion, when you're thinking about creating a biobank, what are the most important steps you know, before you do it, before you go into it? Well, I think that the, the, the number one step is institutional buy-in. Uh, um, there are most academic medical centers now have a, a biobank affiliated with them because it's been, become critical for competing for grants um, with the federal government. So institu the institution has to be willing to support the development of the biobank. It's possible to do a biobank that would be only focused on pulmonary critical care or sleep, 
but our biobank actually covers all diseases and all subspecialties. And that means that there's a much greater potential base of investigators to support the biobank and to use the samples. That having been said, we have probably 6,000 COPD patients and 5,000 asthma patients in the biobank, and it's well represented for most of the other common pulmonary diseases, uh, uh, sleep disorders that you would see. So large number of patients with sleep apnea, large number of patients with IPF. So a, a lot of pulmonary, and even rare pulmonary conditions you'll find a substantial representation because the biobank is so large. And you mentioned initially the involvement of clinicians and researchers and how they interact with the biobank and what the roles are related to the biobank. Can you tell us a little more about this, how in, in, the, in the division your colleagues are, are working and interacting with the biobank? Yeah, so uh, Benji Raby, who was a former head of the genomic subsection of the Allergy Assembly, runs a pulmonary genetic center. So he's seeing patients with genetic diseases. So all of his patients have samples that are in the biobank. So he can do genetic testing on his samples. Uh, he can use the GWAS data. He can take out samples for metabolomics that he can link with his genetic data. Uh, so that's one example. But there are many other studies. There are investigators who are using the GWAS data and looking at asthma, using the GWAS data and looking at uh, asthma-COPD overlap, using the GWAS data for COPD, and linking these data to other studies. Several important features about the biobank, th these are consented samples, fully consented. So the patients consent to uh, being recontacted, which means that if you discover a polymorphism that's of particular interest, it may not have a phenotype that you know about, you can call them back and re-phenotype the patient. Or you can use rare variants that you find in the GWAS data to look for potential drug targets. So there's a whole range of ways that a clinician can potentially interact with the biobank. You know, going back to the issue of the institutional buy-in, one of the crit critical issues is that by subsidizing the biobank in terms of the IT infrastructure and the, the freezers and the alarms on the freezers and all of that sort of stuff, the price to the investigator is discounted dramatically from what it costs to get a sample. So the investigator may pay $20 to get a sample. That price is prorated. If, there, if he gets a large number of samples, he pays, he pays even less. But the institution is covering a lot of the, uh, the, the cost because of the infrastructure that uh, is put in place here. That is uh, an excellent setup. And I think that most of our listeners can learn a lot from using this, uh, like you mentioned, economies of scale and try to look for institutional buy-in to be able to support their local biobanks. Thinking about kind of quality control and also how to move forward after you have established your uh, biobank, what are the essential standard operating procedures that you have implemented in biobanking, in your biobank? Let, let, let me start with one other uh, uh, thing, which maybe even before we get to the quality mm -hmm. control, mm -hmm. an essential feature that, that you have to have, and that is an electronic medical record. We see, on average, uh, six million patients, about a million new patients, mm -hmm. But we have a, a, a repository of about 6 million patients who have been seen 
at partners over the last two or three years. So that's a lot of patients. And each one of those patients has an electronic medical record. We're now on the EPIC system so that any partner's patient anywhere in the 12 hospital system has an electronic medical record that can be called up by a clinician uh, for use. But researchers can get access to the research version of that electronic medical record, which has ICD-9 codes as diagnoses. But we have validated over 40 diagnoses in the electronic medical record using special machine learning algorithms that we've developed. So this means that rather than just going to the biobank and getting a sample and having to do a chart review, investigators can go to the biobank, get these validated phenotypes if they've got appropriate IRB approval, and get samples or get the GWAS data, link them to the phenotypes, and perform all kinds of studies. So I think even before we get to the quality control, having this electronic medical record link and having these validated phenotypes greatly expands what you can do with a biobank. And this has made us competitive in terms of research and research networks that are funded by the NIH, but it's also advantaged our investigators because they have these validated phenotypes. So the first step here in terms of standard operating procedure is having this link to the electronic medical record and having these validated uh, uh, phenotypes. So if you go to our uh, research portal, the investigator sees the electronic medical record. It, he can figure out how many patients have a specific diagnosis, how many patients have IPF who are over the age of 50 who are non-smokers. And he can get that subset of patients. He can link that with the genomic data or link that with the imaging data. Uh, so, so you can see the CT scans on all of these people or perform manipulations of the CT scans, and then he can link it to the samples and, and do a particular study. So with regard to the samples, probably the critical thing about the samples is the speed with which the samples are frozen and separated. Because uh, for high-quality proteomics, you need to freeze your serum and plasma within four hours. That is, the, for, the, for DNA... It's not a problem. You, you can have the DNA being stored at, uh, in a refrigerator uh, for hours, and you won't have to worry about degradation. But the, you have this four-hour window that you have to get the serum and plasma extracted and frozen appropriately uh, if you want to be able to do high-quality proteomics. So we actually take the samples from the two hospitals take them by courier to our central facility in Cambridge, where the serum and plasma are extracted and stored, and one buffy coat aliquot is processed to DNA, and the other buffy coat aliquot is stored as a, a buffy coat. And that whole process of the transport, extraction, and storage, we can accomplish that in the, the requisite four-hour period of time. So that requires a lot of coordination with both the clinical research infrastructure and the biobank. How do you accomplish that? Is it also managed by your IT portal or is something that needs to be scheduled in advance? How are you able to accomplish that? We're still in the stage where we're recruiting for the biobank. So we have recruitment teams in the hospital and uh, the re recruitment teams work in several uh, uh, high volume clinics, both Mass General and the Brigham, where they consent to subjects and then the subjects are, are rooted to phlebotomy stations in the hospital 
where their blood is drawn. In some patients, blood is an add-on to whatever clinical draw that they have. Uh, we only take three tubes. So if they're getting blood drawn for something else, they get their blood drawn for that, but they get the extra tubes taken. And then it's immediately sent to lab control and pathology and then transported to 65 lands. It's a pretty seamless process. It flows pretty uh, smoothly. And we have a couple of pickups during the day so that we uh, can ensure that we get the samples quickly and get them processed quickly. And for samples like bronchodilator lavage or other special samples that are collected in a different setting, what is the type of setup that you have for those So, so that's a really good question. We don't, at this point, we, we are not processing tissue or BAL or urine or stool. Uh, we're, we're focused exclusively on liquid from blood, uh, which makes things a lot easier because we don't have to worry about many different types of samples. Uh, that having been said, it's clear that many investigators would like, one, one of the most popular areas that people would like to get samples is the microbiome, the gut microbiome. So we're not currently doing stool samples, but that's one of the things that we're considering for the future. The other thing is, is that people want to have lung tissue or, or tissue from other organs. And the way we manage that is we, we link specifically to tissue banks where we can link our blood sample to tissue specimens from these tissue banks so that we get an integrated uh, set of samples across the system. So the tissue banks tend to be separate from our central biobank, but we've linked to them electronically via our IT infrastructure so people can get those tissue samples uh, if, if they need them. I think this is a great segue to something that we're all very interested in. It connects to the, so the, the idea of precision medicine. Can you tell us about how the biobank is, is connected to ensuring more accurate diagnosis and personalized patient treatments? I would say the first important trend here is, again, the critical linchpin is the electronic medical record. Because uh, what the electronic medical record done is brought, brought research and clinical care closer together. So now the research representation of the electronic medical record is right there, and people can cull out the type of patients that they want. They can go to the biobank and get samples. They can run a, a genomic or proteomic or metabolomic tests. They can then go back and see if the, those tests predict clinical outcomes or discover some novel treatment based on uh, a rare polymorphic variation in the genome. Uh, and, and then uh, work with the laboratory for molecular medicine, the CLIA lab, to actually try to develop a test that could be used to predict some sort of a clinical event. So I, I, I think that the major impact of precision medicine at the moment has been uh, lo looking for driver mutations, somatic mutations, different from germline mutations in cancers, and using that to provide specific cancer treatments. But as this moves into other disease areas, uh, the overall infrastructure here, which the biobank is only a part, allows investigators to rapidly speed up this process of finding novel molecular diagnostics or therapeutics, which is the essence of uh, uh, precision medicine. So 
I think it's right in line with that, but it's also a recognition that a bio, standalone biobank without the IT infrastructure, without the supporting core laboratories, is, is probably not going to be enough to do this. There are many academic medical centers that have biobanks. There are many academic medical centers who have core labs. There are many academic medical centers who have CLIA genomic testing. But there are very, very, very few academic medical centers who have all of these things linked together, which is the unique feature of what we're doing at Partner. That's a great observation because it, in some ways it provides a, a pretty high standard for the development of biobanks moving forward. Our institution, we definitely take notice of how you're approaching these types of systems to improve quality control, how to make sure that you integrate your pressure samples to the electronic medical record and how you can uh, go from phenotype to molecular diagnostics and Genomic genetic variation and be able to do discovery, but also validation in your own system um, and potentially also replicate that in other systems like your pretty extensive biobank here. I, th I think the I think the other thing that's critical is is it it, it has the, the, this research portal that we have allows the investigator go, go to the research portal, find the patients, find the sample, find the GWAS data, find the imaging data, and link all of that together in a file that he can then take back for data analysis or more detailed genomic testing. So it, it, it doesn't provide everything because, it, it, as I said, specialized samples we, we may not necessarily have. But by linking to the tissue banks, we've accomplished some of this. And by having the ability to recall patients, you can then add on additional samples that you might want to add to the base set of samples and do it at a much lower cost and a much faster process in terms of uh, uh, recontact. So, you know, we're averaging about 10 to 15 requests a week from investigators, and we're currently supporting $84 million in uh, research across Mass General and the Brigham. So uh, this is very rapid growth in a very short period of time because the biobank has really only been at the level of recruitment that we have now for, for a, a couple of years. All the conversation about the biobanks has been very important for our understanding of how we can make this better and how we can optimize it for pulmonary and critical care research. Do you have any closing remarks that you would like to add to what we've been discussing so far? Well, I, 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 I will say a little bit more about the quality control because I think that there is always this tendency for people to want to establish their own private biobanks. And I, I think that in terms of quality control, we have three things that I think are really critical that would be, make it very difficult for a small private biobank to accomplish. One is we have a really high quality uh, laboratory information management system. We can track our samples anywhere in the hospitals. If they go to an outside lab or they go to the Broad Institute for sequencing, we can track that. We can follow where they are. And we've got this research portal where we can aid the investigators in getting the right samples uh, for them. So very good IT infrastructure, very good limb sense system. We use star limbs. Uh, we have all of our freezers are alarmed and monitored. As I said, the greatest quality control issue is sample mix-up and this four-hour window to ensure the highest quality around proteomics. So by having all of these samples frozen at minus 80, 
city, monitoring the freezers. We have two different types of freezer monitors to protect the, the, the samples, make sure that, that we, we, they're split. They're not all put in one freezer. So if a freezer fails, we, we, a sample for that subject would be present in another freezer. Uh, uh, but, but really good IT infrastructure, really high quality uh, uh, freezer monitoring, and meticulous attention to detail means that the quality of the samples is very, very, very high. So I, I think it's uh, having really good customer service, getting the samples to investigators quickly, uh, helping them with IRBs, helping them with data use agreements, helping them in terms of uh, boilerplate language that they can put in their grants. All of this means that the investigators are getting a lot for their dollar. And then giving this genomic data for free is, is a huge plus. But I, I, you know, we're at $82 million now, and we've really only been working on this in the past couple of years. I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will double that in, in the next uh, a couple of years. Our goal is to get to a total of 70,000 consented and 50,000 samples uh, by the end of 2017. And I I think we're reasonably on track uh, uh, to be able to do that. Your impression about how the biobank structure that that, that you have described uh, can help to integrate different groups, not only in pulmonary medicine, but also with other chronic illnesses like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. How much of that are you seeing at this stage in your biobank? But we're we're mostly seeing people who want to focus on an individual disease. But but I think that the trend here is going to be towards uh, systems genomics and systems biology, where people are going to be looking at sort of the, uh, let's take pulmonary hypertension as an example. Effects on the heart, but effects in the lung, maybe effects in other organs. You want to look at the genomics, the transcriptomics, the metabolomics. It would it makes those types of collaborations very easy because all of the groups can have access to these samples and potentially work together uh, around looking at the boundaries of how uh, uh, th- those different uh, uh, organs may be influencing the disease process. I, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Wise. It's been a pleasure having you here as our guest and learning so much about all the accomplishments and also how you design a biobank that serves the needs of the researchers and the clinicians, and also how we can transmit that down to your patients. Thank you so much. Well, well thank you for, uh, for having me, and hopefully uh, uh, this will be beneficial to uh, uh, ATS members in terms of thinking about this uh, uh, issue going forward.